But uh, I, I feel like I've been commissioned this morning to, um, to talk about uh, what that looks like in our normal everyday life. I want to give you guys some kind of practical steps to, to, to see this take place. And it, uh, it, it's interesting because it happens in, a, in an interesting way in Scripture. So we're going to, like, put our marathon shoes on and get at it quickly. So if you guys can just hold on to your seats and uh, get your notes or whatever you want to take, Bibles, all that fun stuff, because we're going to get at it this morning. So um, first off, I want to start out with a couple promises to, like, hang our hats on. All right? First and foremost... In 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, um, verse 13, it says, Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for God cannot deny himself. And so something that we can hang on this morning is that even in our darkest days, our most hopeless moments, the times when we feel the messiest in our life, if that's you right now and you're in the pit, if you've been there and you know what I'm talking about, it doesn't matter how much faith, how little, how big, how much hope, whether you got some or none, at the end of the day, God cannot deny himself, so he is always faithful. We can hang on that, and we can believe on that. Another one, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Though the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of the Lord stands forever. So not only does God remain faithful, does he not change, does he stay consistent with who he is, but the word that he proclaims over us, this word, the, the, the scriptures, the revealed word in nature, the way that we encounter God through different experiences and all of those kind of things always stand true. They always come through. So God himself and his word are something that we can always hang on. And that's really important Because I don't know if you've lived around this world for a long time, but if you have, this life gets a little messy. Amen? We get in messes. And and, and sometimes where we are at isn't uh, a whole lot of fun. Now, um, because of that, one of the promises that we see in Scripture, and this is something that I've been kind of working on in my own life uh, these last several months, I'm just going to give you a snapshot in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 and 8, and in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is transitioning the people of Israel to take over, uh, for Joshua to take over the leadership of Israel so that they can walk into the promised land. They can go conquest the land that God promised them. And in Joshua chapter 1 verse 5, God is actually talking to Joshua and he says something very similar to what you see in Deuteronomy 31 verses 6 and 8. The statement that I want to focus on today is this statement. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? I mean, all of us have seen that in some way, shape, or form. You walk into a, uh, uh, somebody's house, right? And they've got that kind of like on a little stitch work art thing, you know, in their house. That's kind of one of those statements. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. In Joshua 1, 1, 5, it says, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with, Mo- with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to give their fathers. The reason why I know that this passage, this statement, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is a promise for me personally and for you personally is because the writer of Hebrews reiterates this in Hebrews 13 verse 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So if God himself never changes, and if his word stays the same, and it, and it never changes, then this promise that was true hundreds and hundreds of years ago to Joshua and to Moses and to Israel and to the writer of Hebrews and the reader, the original readers of the book or the, the letter of Hebrews is if it's true for them, then it's true for me. God will never leave me nor forsake me. However, <laughs> like I said, if you've lived on this planet long enough, you know just as well as I do that we have had moments where we have felt abandoned. We've had moments where the lights turned off. We've had moments where it gets dark real quick. You can be praising the Lord and life can be fine and then all of a sudden a tragedy, a trauma, something can hit your life and all of a sudden it gets dark and you go, where'd you go, God? What happened? What'd I do? Did I do something wrong? What happened, God? Where are you? Job comes to mind, right? Life is fine, everything's okay. All of a sudden, boom, loses everything. It gets dark real quick, right? What do we do in those moments? It's fun, hear me. It's fun to proclaim that God is a God of breakthrough and that he comes through. And it's fun to get on this stage and to, to run and dance and sing and jump around and all those kind of things. And that is part of like the emotional expression of I can't contain the goodness that I'm encountering with the Lord. But what about in the moment when your marriage is falling through? What about in the moment where you lose your job? What about in that moment when you're stuck in this habitual sin that you feel like you can't get out of? Is he good then? Just as good as he was 10 minutes ago when we were singing, kick the enemy in the throat? Is he still good? Does he still not change? What happened? Does he never leave us nor forsake us? What do we do with passages like in, in um, Mark 15 and in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, Jesus is on the cross. He's heading to his death, right? And it says in verse 45, it says, From the sixth hour, which is 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, which is 6 p.m. Verse 46, And about the ninth hour, listen to this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fast forward a couple verses and you have Jesus hanging on a cross. It says he let out a, a loud cry and gave up his spirit and died. My God, my God, the last audible thing that Jesus spoke out of his mouth before he passed to death was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do we do with passages like that? What do we do in those moments when you are feeling the tension of the world, when you're feeling the weight of the pressure, the weight of the struggle on your life? First off, I want to give you, like I said, some practical, like how do we dig out in those moments, Okay, um, but before we jump into that, I just want to give you a quick doctrinal thought on this passage. Okay, I want to explain why Jesus used this phrase. 
The reason why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because it's actually a psalm. It's in the Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 22, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, I find this so interesting, right? Jesus, here he is on the cross and he's dying. And with the last like thing that he iterates that makes any sense whatsoever, his last statement, he quotes a scripture. He quotes Psalm 22. And it says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, if you were a Jew and you were at the crucifixion during Jesus' time, the Jews knew Scripture pretty well, and they would have known that he was quoting a psalm. So the reason, doctrinally speaking, the reason why Jesus, as he's nailed to a cross, the reason why this is his last breath, why it's his last statement, is because he wants the people that are around him in this moment to go, wait a minute, that's familiar. I've heard that somewhere else. And they go get their scrolls out, and they go dig back around, and they look back at this psalm. Catch this. This psalm is broken into two parts. The first 18 verses are called a lament. A lament means life is not fun. I don't like it. Hey, God, I'm just telling you, I don't like it. That's what a lament is. If you've ever done that before, right, that's what you're lamenting. The next half is, uh, uh, the next half, so like 19 through 30 something, is uh, encouragement. Hey, I'm gonna sing praises to God. I'm gonna kick the enemy in the face, like all that fun stuff. Like that's, it transitions in the, the last half of the, the chapter 22. But watch this. Fast forward with me to chapter 22, verse 16. It says this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They have pierced my hands and feet. Hang on a minute. <laughs> What's happening in this moment? He's on the cross, guys, right? He says in 17, I can count all my bones. By the way, not one of Jesus' bones were broken. This is a prophetic fulfillment. They stare and gloat over me. Listen to this. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So just a few verses before Jesus says this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says that the Roman soldiers went off to the side and they were throwing dice for Jesus's clothing. So the point in Jesus breathing this is his last statement is he is trying to get the people to understand. It's like his last ditch effort. Hey guys, do you get this? <laughs> do you see the picture? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They pierce my hands and my feet. They're casting lots for my clothing. I am the Messiah. Like if at any point Jesus could have said, you know what? I need to make this moment about me. Check me out. Look at me on the cross. Everybody feel bad for my pain and my suffering. No, what he does is he claims Psalm 22 to try to get the people who are watching this to try to get their attention to go, guys, I'm the Messiah. Do you not see? I'm doing this for you to get back into community with God. Do you not see? If they would have continued reading 
in Psalm 22. Like I said, the last uh, Psalm uh, 19, starting in 22, 19 through the rest of the chapter, the verse pivots and it begins to talk praise about how no matter what we go through, we're going to praise the Lord. We're going to give him glory. It's like he was prophetically saying, guys, don't give up. There is a resurrection that's coming. So what happens in those moments when we feel forsaken, when we feel broken, when we feel like we're not going to make it through? Jesus gives us a model here to look for the resurrection. Secondly, Jesus is expressing his desolation. He's expressing the fact that he feels separated from God. He's not looking for an answer. He's not using that as a statement like like he didn't know what was happening. He knew the purpose for him being on this planet. He knew that uh, that he was going to die on a cross. And he knew that he and the Father were getting ready to be separated. What was happening is that he was experiencing something new. The absence of the presence of God. You see, the word forsaken, when it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, total side note, this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus refers to God as my God, my God. Every other time, he talks about him as his Father. The reason why he says, my God, my God, not only is it because it was in Psalm 22, but it's because you can't take sonship away. He doesn't talk about him as his Father. He talks about him as his God. The word forsaken it, it means in this context to intentionally leave something behind. So essentially, it means like this bottle of water, I know that I have it in my hand and I am going to set it down and I'm intentionally walking away from that bottle of water. I will forsake that bottle of water and I'm not coming back to it. I'm walking away from that bottle. What happens in this moment is that the weight of all of the sin, past, present, and future, all sin past, present, and future, sat on the perfect, sinless Son of God. And for the first time ever, Jesus began to feel the separation of the presence of God away from his life. He began to feel like what it would feel like if he had sinned. You ever felt like you've been abandoned by the Lord? (laughs) You ever felt like he's not there in that moment? Jesus began to feel the intensity of the weight of sin literally pushing him to the grave. And God forsakes. He turns his back, if you want to use it in that way. You see, wherever God's presence is, there's life. By default. You can't be in the presence of God and not be alive. It's kind of the overflow. It's like God is love and he's life and he is all of these, these amazing characteristics. And, and, and what's happening in this moment is that the very presence, the very life is, is being sucked away from Jesus. And it says, literally, he gave up his spirit. He breathed his last. Now, scholars say um, that Jesus took all this for us so that we don't have to. Now, we know in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death, right? So Jesus did take the wages of sin for us, 
right? He took that death on for us so that we did not have to die in eternal death. That's the reason why he died on the cross, perfect, sinless life. However, the catch is that is true that he took all of this so that we don't have to, but we are still subject to the effects and the consequences of the brokenness and the sin that still exists in this world. Now, on the other side of eternity, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in. Hooray, right? Eternity in mind. We are going to step into a new body, into a new resurrection, into a new life. That is something to be hopeful for. However, on this side of eternity, we still deal with the aftermath of sin. Sometimes it's our sin. Sometimes it's somebody else's sin. Sometimes it's, a, it's just a mess that we find ourselves in. Jesus actually prayed in John 17. He said, I pray that the disciples and all of us, I would assume, as we're following Jesus, that we're disciples, like he prayed that the disciples wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that they would be kept from the evil one. And then multiple times in scripture, he says, you will encounter persecutions. Basically promising hardships are gonna come. It's not always gonna be kittens and unicorns. Did you know that persecution is not just a physical thing. It's not just about the, the poor people over in China, the poor Christians over in China getting killed for the faith and you know all the different Muslim countries and so on and so forth. It's not just about pe people being persecuted in the natural for their faith. Did you know that persecution can also be spiritual? Did you know that there are spiritual entities that it is their job description to basically get into any space that you will allow them to get into your soul and convince you how screwed up and messed up and broken and far apart from God that you are and to basically condemn you, shame you into feeling like he is not there? That's persecution. The enemy is real. He's not playing. He wants to still kill and destroy. Now, I know that this sounds bleak, right? I know this is kind of messy, but I promise it has a good ending. What do we do when we encounter this forsakenness, this abandonment? I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I pray that you don't. Honestly, I pray that you've never encountered anything like this. But the reality is I know far too well that all of us have to deal with sin we have to deal with the consequence of messy stuff in our life. Sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's not your fault. Have you ever had to pay for somebody else's mistakes? I've had multiple times over these last few years where everything was okay. Life was going fine, and then all of a sudden it got dark real quick. And I think to myself, what do I need to do <laughs> to get out of this? I know I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. You don't have to, I, like, I'm assured of that. But I want to live a victorious life on this side of eternity. I'm tired of getting my face kicked in. I'm tired of feeling like I'm losing, right? What do we do in these moments where just like Jesus, okay, all of a sudden everything's okay, but then that separation, you begin to feel it. You begin to sense it. Like, where'd he go? God, where are you? See, practically speaking, I would posit that the first thing that we should do in this moment when we, if, if, if you feel like the, there's like a lid on you in, in the Lord, 
the, I, I would say maybe the first thing that you should do is just take inventory. Take a minute and assess your life. Is there any sin in your life currently? Is there any blatant, like, yes, I'm struggling with this, and I know that I need to overcome it? Is there any sin in your camp? And I don't mean just you. I'm talking about your family. I'm talking about your atmosphere. If you're going to work every day in a sin-filled sin-filled camp, and you're not bringing light into that camp, then you're getting consumed by the persecutors that are hell-bent on shaming you and condemning you and making you think that you actually don't have the victory. You do, by the way, but their job is to convince you that your workplace will never be changed. Their job is to convince you that your marriage will never be any different. That that relationship, that thing, that addiction, whatever that thing is, that anxiety, that depression, that struggle, it'll never be any different. That's their job is to persecute you. And so when you begin to feel that separation, like where did he go? The first thing that I would encourage you to do is take a minute and look around and go, is there sin in my camp? Hey, dad's in the room, husband's in the room. Is there sin in your home? It's time to take authority as the husband. Did you know that the word husband literally means house band? You're banding the house it's time for us as men and women of faith, as sons and daughters of a king that, have, that we have access to unlimited resources, unlimited opportunity with the Father to go step on the face of the enemy. And I don't mean just because we can sing a song. I mean when we see it in the culture, when we see it in our home, when we see it in our workplaces, that's when we take inventory and we go, you know what, I'm not standing for this. Now, I don't mean go get your picket, go get your sign and tell everybody how, much, how bad of a sinner they are. I mean, Jesus on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's calling them. He's drawing them to himself. That's what we do. We love people through grace and through mercy. We serve them. We humble ourselves. We get on the floor like Josh just talked about. But first, is there any sin in your life? Is there sin in, in your immediate life? Uh, uh, dwelling place. If it is, hello, there's your lid. <laughs> there's the disconnect. Found it. After you're um, examining that, if there's no blatant sin in your life, examine your belief systems. Examine what it is that you're believing. Pray something like this. God, Am I believing anything that's keeping me from the awareness of your presence? If so, please reveal that to me. Because you see, abandonment and forsakenness manifest themselves any place where sin exists. And did you know that unbelief is a sin? Like it's actually sinful to not believe the, the word of the Lord. When he says that you're victorious, if you, if you don't possess that the belief system, then that's actually unbelief. Let's just say, for instance, you're going through a really rough part of your life and you hear something like this. This is never going to get any better. Your best days have already come and gone. You have nothing to look forward to. If you've ever heard that, newsflash, that's unbelief. That's a persecutor trying to come in 
condemn, shame, and tell you you've got nothing left. You've already missed the mark. You've screwed up. You might as well throw in the towel. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If there's no blatant sin in your life, what he is trying to do is either pull up your past or make you fearful of the future. He's going to pull up and go, remember when you did that? Remember when you screwed up back there? You're never going to get over that. You're always going to be that person. Or he's going to say, the the future is so uncertain, you can't trust in anything. Well, the God I know didn't change yesterday, and he didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed today, and he's not going to tomorrow. And if he's still in control, then his word never fails, and therefore, I can be sure that I'm safe and secure in the palm of his hand. So if that's true, then maybe I'm believing something that's wrong. And if I'm believing something that's wrong, then all of a sudden that's where that abandonment starts showing up. And there's your lid. After examining your life, your lifestyle, your belief systems, if you, if you can say, hey, I know that there's no sin here. I know I'm, that I'm, 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 uh, I'm clean. I, I know that I'm, I'm honest before the Lord. I'm pure before the Lord. And your belief systems are healthy. You're, you're, you're standing in victory and all those kind of things. But you're still experiencing this like lid, like Job, right? Job didn't do anything wrong. A bunch of bad mess happened to him. And he began to question, like, where did he go? Where'd God go? What happened? If all that is happening to you, if you're coming up empty-handed, the next thing that you need to do is ask the Lord for an increase in faith. You see, faith is a God-given ability. It doesn't come from you. It's not a spiritual muscle that you can develop. It's something that only he gives you and can increase by the gift of the Lord. So faith is a God-given ability to see past the consequences of your sin and a God-given ability to believe against all hope something that can be. It's like, um, imagine somebody uh, early in their life, they, they uh, go and they murder some people, and they get a life sentence in prison, right? And they come to the Lord. Well, guess what? Is the sin consequence of their natural life going to probably leave them in prison for the rest of their life? Yes, it is. But can that person have hope in the middle of prison? You better hope so. (laughs) The reality is that no matter what our past circumstances are, no matter what kind of consequences we have to pay for because of our actions and so on and so forth, God is still God. And he can give us hope for a future no matter where we are. It's the reason why guys like that who go to prison and they get saved become preachers in the prison. Did you know that prisoners need church too? Sometimes the best pastors are the ones that are in the jail cell beside them. But it takes hope. It takes faith. It takes a God-given faith that we cannot conjure up on our own to be able to lift that lid and go, God, I, I, I see you with spiritual eyes. My natural circumstances are trash right now, but I see you with spiritual eyes. Faith forms a trust, get this, where we begin to believe that God is doing a work in our soul. In our soul. When we begin to feel abandoned and broken, that's what the persecutor wants to do is attack your your soul, the place where your mind, will, and emotions are. It's the reason why uh, Christians deal with anxiety and hopelessness and depression and all those kind of things is because the persecutor's are trying their best 
to break us down in our soul. Why? Because you can't see that. If you get cancer, you just go to the doctor, right? There's diagnoses. You get pneumonia, you get sicknesses, you go to the doctor, they give you pills, whatever. We get attacked in the soul. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know exactly what you're supposed to be doing, the right prescription you need to be taking, right? God wants to meet us in that place. And here's the catch, okay? I just want to share this passage because um, uh, this is the illustration that the Lord has been giving me as I've been processing on this. It's the idea, and I've just, it's so cool that Josh mentioned the Samaritan woman because it has to do with that. But um, uh, it's the, this concept of digging a well. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, uh, it talks about this, and it'll be up on the screen, but, but think about this, okay? Here, here's what, imagine your inner self, okay? So your mind, will, and emotions, the conversation that you have when you're by yourself with the Lord, and, and sometimes the conversation you have just with your own self when you're by yourself. By the way, you're not crazy if you talk to yourself. We all do that. Um, but imagine your inner self is like a, a well, okay? Some, just some dirt, and what God wants to do and he wants to start shoveling, and he wants to start digging a well in you, in your soul, to inhabit the water of life. At first, when we first meet the Lord, sometimes it's like one shovelful. It's not very deep. But the more that we give the Lord access to our life, basically what we're asking him to do is to dig a deeper well. Now, be careful with that <laughs> because when you ask the Lord to dig a well inside of you, it hurts. The reason why people feel forsaken by God as followers of Jesus is because what God is doing in that moment is he is taking away everything that is not God. He's digging out shovelful by shovelful everything that is not God. And sometimes as followers of Jesus, we identify so closely with our sin and so closely with our shame and so closely with these needs of our soul that are not from God, we actually think that's part of us. And what God is doing is saying, nope, that's not you. Nope, that's not you. I wanna dig this out. That's not a fun process, but I'm telling you, it's worth it. When you go through hardships and struggles and you feel like there's a lid there, there is a faith that God is offering you to walk through any circumstance that you will face on the face of this planet and you will come through on the other side deeper than you were before. Not painless, but deeper than you were before. That's what he's doing when it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, listen to this. The prophet says to the people of Israel, he says, the people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, right? What I say, they saw it, said, God, no, that's good. I'm, I don't want that. They've forsaken me. The living, the fountain of living water. What does that sound like? Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She says, if you, he says, if you knew who was here, you'd be asking me for a drink because I give everlasting water. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out cisterns. In other words, they've dug their own wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, that's what the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to figure out, he wants us to have a poverty mentality that says, I've got to dig my own well. God's not going to meet this for me. 
So I got to figure it out on my own. And God says, that's a broken cistern. I don't care what you turn to. I don't care what substance. I don't care what issue. I don't care what addiction. I don't care what uh, relationship, whatever. Anything that is not God will be a broken cistern that leaves you empty. I don't care how good it is. You can give away 10 million pairs of Tom's shoes on your own finances and you will still be empty at the end of the pair. You will still be empty at the end of the day. Broken cisterns. Anything that is not God is a broken cistern. It can't hold water. I don't care how good it is. It can't hold the eternal water. What God says is, I want to dig a well in you. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, I could give you water, <laughs> everlasting water. What he didn't tell her is that the process of digging that well is not fun. Sometimes the process of disagreeing with that place in your life that you've been so closely bound to for so long, sometimes disagreeing with that is the most painful thing you could ever do. So whenever you feel forsaken, maybe it's God turning his back on what's not you so that he can tell you who you really are. You know, I just wanna leave you with this, this one imagery and we're gonna call it a day. There's a difference between burying something and planting something. But at the beginning, it looks the same. All that seed knows is it's getting dirt put on it. It's getting buried. Now the farmer knows he's planting, right? There's a difference between burying and planting. In John chapter 12, it says, Jesus answered. There was a group of people that he was talking to. He said, the hour has come, listen to this, when the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, Jesus understood that him hanging on that cross and getting put in that grave he wasn't being buried. <laughs> he was being planted. And he knew in just a few short days, he was going to rise out of that tomb, a new creation. And that's the promise that the Lord has on every single one of us. You might feel like you're being buried right now. You might feel like you're getting covered up and like you can't get out of anything. You might feel like the darkness is closing in on you. By the way, do you know what the best planting material is? It's manure. So you might feel like a bunch of crap is getting poured on you in your life. But I promise you, if you ask the Lord for faith to see eyes to see what only he can see, ears to hear what only he can hear. And you submit to the power and the presence of God, then what will come out of the mess of your life is beauty for ashes, strength for weakness.
you will arise a person that you never knew you could be. Because God wants to place his spirit in you and resurrect that broken life. So the moment, the next time that you feel abandoned, the next time you feel that lid coming over, get on your face and go, God, let me see what you're planning me to be. This isn't burying me. This is only the beginning. I'm not going to be buried by this mess. I'm not going to be buried by this sin. I'm not going to be buried by this circumstance. I'm getting planted so that I can become something new, something more effective for the kingdom. Recognize that God is turning his back on everything that's not you. so that you can become the person that he has designed you to be. That's what he wants. It's not fun. It's not a guaranteed pain-free process. But it's worth it.